Myanmar army airstrikes on an ethnic armed group have killed dozens of people. Rights groups say the attack on a celebratory event is a war crime. Has the military intensified its fight against the rebels? And how have the country's many ethnic conflicts evolved since the coup? I'm Laura Kyle, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now to talk further about this. In London, Chor Min, Executive Director of the Burma Human Rights Network. In Chiang Mai, in Thailand, Justin Chambers, a postdoctoral researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies. Her work focuses on authority and ethno-national conflict in Myanmar. And also in London, Christopher Gunnis, director of the Myanmar Accountability Project. A very warm welcome to all of you. Chormin, let's start by looking a little bit more at this Kachin attack. At least 60 killed, including civilians. Why did the military junta target this concert? And, and what's been the Kachin response? But actually, if I go back to uh, clear, clearly, clearly in explaining you about this, uh, this is not the first time they're targeting the civilian uh, target, non-combatant targets. The military has been using two types of uh, airstrike. One is a helicopter gunship. The other one is a fighter jet, latest fighter jets from, acquired from Russia. Uh, every time, if you, there are more than 200 times the airstrike has been conducted across the country within these couple of years. And uh, the targeted places are Karin, Kareni, Kachin, Chin, Zagain. These five states are heavily fighting against the military. And the, all the civilian target has been bombarded and they're using a helicopter gunship to, to, to scorch earth uh, policy they're using to destroy all the villages, to destroy the populations, killing the civilians. And just two days ago, I have a report from the ground. Uh, dozens of uh, civilians have been killed and burned alive and all the villages have been destroyed and using the helicopter gunship. So this is a widespread and a very systematic uh, crime against humanity committed by the military. Uh, Justin, I can, Justine, I can see you nodding in response. Why is the military targeting these civilian points? Look, I think it's a sign of desperation. I think the military is using its most brutal and hard tactics against the resistance, and particularly in those areas where the resistance is so strong, such as those areas controlled by uh, ethnic resistance organisations like in Kachin and Karen and Chin and Sagain. Um, you know, I think this is a show of their desperation that they don't have control over this conflict and that they are going to the darkest measures um, to inflict violence against communities and, and spread fear. Christopher, what, what impact is it having? Is it making people in these ethnic minority areas cower and kowtow to the military, or is it boosting the resistance? Well, it's certainly empowering the resistance because people are looking at these brutal tactics and realising that there can be no accommodation and that the only answer is going to be some kind of violence resistance. Now, your question has two parts. There's a humanitarian aspect, there's a strategic aspect. On the humanitarian side, 100,000 people have been displaced by fighting in Kachin State, and reports that I'm getting is that the, uh, there are further displacements going on every day, and that is reflected across Myanmar since the coup. 1.3 million people, according to the latest UN estimates, are internally displaced. Um, on the strategic front, what we've seen since the coup in February last year is the dramatic fragmentation 
of this conflict. So not only is the army fighting the ethnic armed groups like the KIO, um, they are also trying to control the civil disobedience movement, which is becoming increasingly uh, a, a violent confrontation line, thanks to the violence in large part of the military. And also what we're seeing springing up across the country are the so-called PDFs, the People's Defence Forces. And they are mounting extraordinarily brave um, guerrilla uh, tactics, ambushes. Um, we hear them almost every day. But what we're not seeing is these PDFs brought under any really unified central command. So there's increasing mm. Anarchy, new battle lines, a very fluid situation which the army is having to confront. As, as we've just heard, the army has lost control. They are simply not in effective control across the country, which is very important uh, when you come to talk about the diplomatic aspects of this conflict. So the PDFs may not be under any central command, but Chorwin, to what extent are they being allied with these ethnic armed groups? Uh, between the ethnic arms group, they have, because you see that the, uh, before the revolution happened, the ethnic arms group have been fighting against the military long time. Mm. But right now, if you look at the uh, map, Zagain and the Magui, where these two provinces uh, before, they are the main area place where the military recruit their civil uh, for, for their ground troops. But these two locations are now fighting against the military, so they have a shortage of manpower. And the ground troop, if you look at the, all the strategy, the way they are uh, defending and attacking, they are using more civil uh, air power rather than uh, uh, launching offensive attack on the ground force. You know, uh, for example, recently, the two days, a few days ago, there was a KNLA and the PDF joint uh, uh, offensive launch against uh, uh, in a city called Cochrane City. Uh, during that fight, the, the, the strategy of the uh, KNLA was a hit and run. They occupied for a few days and they, they, they withdraw. But the response from the military, instead of sending them more troops to push them back, they used uh, artilleries and air power excessively. And there were heavy, you know, fighting went on and, and the, the, the blast and using artilleries and, and the fighter jets and helicopter gunship instead of sending ground troops. So what we see is they are uh, controlling, they are saving their manpower to defend the major major area, major cities and major towns and not wasting that manpower because they have a shortage of manpower is very clear. So they are using the military, uh, the air power and all this uh, a substitute against the uh, uh, you know, uh, manpower. So all the city and uh, the ethnic groups, if you look at the ethnic group like Karenis and Karens and Kachin, they are having, they are receiving, you know, series of dozens of airstrikes mm. every day and the civilians are in a, in a, in a, you know, fleeing to different, different directions. And the, their heavy casualties are having not only in the combatant, it's all, all on the military, all the civilians. Because when you look at the civilian, they are not trained to, you know, counter this kind of, this kind of attack. Whereas the military, those who train, they, they know how to manage all this kind of attacks. So that is a big issue now. The problem here right now is there is a huge lack of uh, political will from international community to take effective action against that barbarous and murderous regime to stop uh, killing all the civilians. 
Sure. This is an important point international community need to take immediate action. It is, and I do hope to get to that just in a moment. Christopher, uh, when we look at this growing intensity of violence, some UN experts are calling the current situation a civil war. Do you agree with that, or do you, as you said before, think that it's more anarchic than that? I think that there is a situation of civil war, and the, con the, the significance of that is that the Myanmar army is one faction in a civil war. It's not the government. The coup has failed. They've not taken control. They don't have effective control over the vast majority of the country. So, yes, and to add to what Chorwin has just said about aerial bombardments, a collective punishment for which an international crime, a collective punishment is for which there must be um, accountability, we're also seeing the increasing use of mass arson attacks. Now, just imagine this a government, a so-called government, which claims to be in control delivering services, is actually burning down huge, huge areas. According to the latest UN report, 28,000 homes have been burnt down. These are deliberate attacks on areas which the government believes are under the control of opposition groups. Mm. And as I say, that's had huge, huge impact. So, yes, anarchy, but also there is a civil war. It's no longer the traditional view, a central government fighting against these pesky armed groups. That's not the paradigm. The ethnic arms group, armed groups have now got other allies across the country, including, as Chorwin was saying, in some of the central areas, which had previously been relatively peaceful. They're Bama majority areas, the areas uh, which are largely majority of the Bama people, the majority of people of Myanmar. So it's an, a situation where the army has simply lost control. And as we were hearing earlier, these tactics they were seeing, these massacres, these mass bombings, these aerial bombardments, these mass arson attacks, they are symptomatic of the fact that the army has lost control. Okay. These are desperate... Yes, and, and can I also endorse what Chauvin has said? The, the, the model that the international community is adopting to look to ASEAN's so-called five-point consensus, its five-point peace plan, that is simply out of date. They're not the diplomacy, the international response, response both in terms of the, the diplomatic response, but also the humanitarian response, which we should talk about, is just not keeping pace with reality. Absolutely, on the and I believe that the Malaysian foreign minister has already said that that plan uh, is out of date, and they will be meeting um, in Indonesia on Thursday, won't they, the ASEAN Southeast Asian foreign minister to discuss this further. Just before we get on to that, uh, Justine, against this backdrop of, of anarchy, of violence, of, of huge attacks, of fragmentation, where does Min Ong Langs, the, 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 the senior general, where does his peace plan fit with all this? Because only in May he held face-to-face -face peace talks with 10 of the ethnic groups. What was the outcome of that? Was there any headway made? I think it's really important not to categorise all ethnic groups in the same light. Some have much stronger capabilities than others. Mm. And those, a lot of those groups that did participate in the peace talks are actually quite small. Um, and, you know, some of the strongest uh, ethnic uh, resistance organisations like the Korean National Union, like the Kachin Independence Organisation, and even the Arakan army, they are not engaged in these peace talks. And, you know, the national ceasefire agreement, uh, which was, um, you know, composed under the 
period of reform that is no longer um, feasible, you know, because those uh, ethnic armed organisations signed an agreement with the Myanmar government and the, not with the Myanmar military. And the Myanmar military is coming up with this sham peace process to try and court ethnic resistance organisations as they have done in the past and they are using, you know, a carrot and stick approach where they are offering, you know, various contracts to uh, access to natural resources, mining concessions, etc., as they have always done for the last 30 years um, since they first started entering negotiations with ethnic armed organisations. And, you know, they're trying to do that again, but it's actually not working for the majority um, of ethnic armed organisations who actually are backing the resistance. I also just want to say that, you know, this is actually not just a civil war, it's a revolution. And what makes it so revolutionary is the ideas that are coming out of it. And the reason that so many of these powerful ethnic resistance organisations are backing the revolution, including the parallel national unity government, is because there is this process to try and create a general, uh, genuine federal democracy, which is part of the key demands ethnic resistance organisations have been fighting for for more than 70 years. I wanted to bring that up as well. So uh, thank you for, for segueing us in because this national unity government, it's not straightforward either, is it? The groups may not want to be talking to the military, but they certainly didn't have a better time under Aung San Suu Kyi in the National League for Democracy. And many of the national unity government members are NLD members. So Chor Min, how, how much trust have these ethnic groups got in this political process? How much trust do they have in the national unity government that they're going to offer a genuine federal democracy? Uh, I don't think it is, uh, you know, the view of the uh, ethnic minorities, the way they are looking at the NUG is not as inclusive. Uh, and you can see that the NUCC, which is the National Unity Council, which were you know, main policy were made. And uh, there are some major groups are withdrawn now. And also there are, like, uh, Muslim groups are also not allowed to join there. So it is very much uh, monopolized by the former NLD members. And that is what our concern with the NUG. But it is not the time we uh, divide among us and giving the opportunity to the military. We have to focus on the revolution. But at the same time, we need to make, make sure NUG should not repeat the same mistake that NLE did. And we international community should not repeat the same mistake that did with the NLD. So that is an important point here is very, we need to be very pragmatic, very realistic. And in the policy making, in the government forming, in every aspect of the future uh, any government should be all inclusive. All inclusive means we need to involve all the ethnic leaders and ethnic representatives from the scratch, not just from the government and telling them we, we put someone, some, some people from your community. That's not inclusive. That is a showcase. So we need to be very clear, clear here. And another point here is international community need to take a pragmatic approach, which is now there is no ICJ or ICC case could protect us from the air raid, airstrikes. We need defense. We need protection. Civilians, billions of civilians in Burma now victim of airstrike, the weapons they acquired from the Russia. 
We need protection. So international community need to do something. Not just and the, the very we are very uh, frustrated mm. with UN agencies, which is shaking hand with the uh, with the with the Burmese military. And these are all carrier uh, diplomats and the carrier uh, staff, those who want to continue their job. But it's not the time to giving the military uh, any any kind of uh, recognition and giving them. These are the criminals. These are the barbaric criminals. They are they are supposed to be behind the bar, not in the table to to, to you know deciding the okay. future of our country. Christopher, let's and bring this, you in because your organisation it, it campaigns for victims of atrocities, doesn't it? And so, how common do you find these sorts of incidents? And how can victims of these kind of incidents find justice? Well, that's a very interesting question, a very important question. As you say, we are the Myanmar Accountability Project. One simple way, I mean, there's been some talk about the International Criminal Court, and it's very easy, as happened with Ukraine, by the way, for member states of the Rome state parties to the Rome Statute, which is the document which set up the, the International Criminal Court, they can simply make a referral. In the case of Ukraine, there were dozens, there were over 40 that, you, that referred Ukraine to the International Criminal Court. There is absolutely no reason why you, the, the situation in Myanmar, Min Aung Hlaing and his military thugs should not be referred to the International Criminal Court. The National League for Democracy has made a declaration that it accepts the jurisdiction of the court. MAP has uh, commissioned and we've published a legal opinion endorsed by some of the great legal minds on the planet, including Justice Richard Goldstone of South Africa, John Dugard, some of the most respected jurisprudential scholars on the planet who all say that the court could intervene. All it takes is for member Rome statute parties to state parts of the Rome statute to refer the case. So that's one thing that could happen quite easily. We've also got cases springing up around the world. There is a move in Jakarta petitioning the constitutional court to allow cases to be brought there. That would be very interesting because it's an ASEAN member state. And of course, Indonesia becomes the chair of ASEAN next year. There's mm. the Rohingya case in, in Argentina. So there's universal jurisdiction cases among member states. Those are jurisdictions of, of nations around the world. Those are possible, but we've also got the ICC process. We need to have a referral if any states parties, any foreign minister or justice ministers are listening and they care about their Rohingyas, they care about what's happening in Myanmar, these terrible uh, international crimes being committed, they can be referred to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. And we at MAP urge those referrals. You know, where is Britain, the pen holder at the United Nations Security Council? Britain could make the referral, not via the Security Council. It doesn't have to go that route where obviously China and Russia would veto. A direct referral can be made to the court. Where is Bangladesh? There are plenty of other member states who could refer this. And we want to see more okay. and more universal jurisdiction cases. Thank you. Justine, Myanmar has always struggled to find a national identity that reflects all these ethnic diversities. In these extraordinary times, do you find that the Burman majority people have more empathy with these ethnic minority struggles? Is this a real turning point for Myanmar? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there is a lot of reason to uh, not have hope for the current context. And, you know, I think there's also still a lot of division. Um, you know, these grievances are not just going to go away overnight. But I think what gives me hope and, you know, amongst my friends, including a lot of ethnic um, friends and activists, is that there is this process where there's this recognition of violence experienced by ethnic communities for decades. And 
I think there is a real collective recognition that the, you know, the military has basically lied to people um, for, for many years in propping themselves up as the father of so-called father of the nation. And, you know, I think that there, you know, there is increasingly people coming out, notable leaders coming out and apologising for, you know, not recognising those experiences, particularly against um, communities like the Rohingya um, and, you know, more broadly, uh, ethnic minorities all over the country. And, and I think the fact that there are these processes taking place, you know, even though there is division and contestation, of course, there's going to be division mm. and contestation. These things just, you know, don't just, um, you know, change overnight. But, you know, even this week, I was chatting uh, with a Kareni uh, activist, and she's part of a, um, uh, a a process that's, you know, coming up with a policy on transitional justice. And I think that's just like, so incredible that you have these people coming together and coming up with, um, you know, a plan and a concrete plan um, to hold the military accountable. But it's also not just for the military to be accountable, but for also, you know, all, um, you know, actors in this process, in this um, in this revolution, mm. to be accountable for crimes against humanity. Chorwin, you've got people in Myanmar fighting for democracy. You mentioned before you want to see more international involvement. We've got this meeting of Southeast Asian nations on Thursday. What would you like to see out of it? Look, how we categorize it is a revolution or a civil war, whatever we categorize it is. <clears throat> Accountability is a, not a major response to this crisis. Accountability is a side response. But the important thing is we need to save life. We need, in order to save life, we need to take the pragmatic action on the ground. And I'm not suggesting to, you know, fighting to, to spread the fighting, but the, how we are going to stop this murderous regime from butchering civilian every day with using fighter jets. There must be some solution. When Russia is killing civilian in Ukraine, we never go to international community, never go to, uh, uh, you know, to ask other, other uh, security council to stop this. We doing every country is taking their role, playing their role to protect the civilian. That's why not in Burma, why it is double standard, why people of Burma treated less human being or not that deserve to be protected. So that is a very important point here. Coming to the ASEAN, ASEAN is divided. Like Malaysia, like Indonesia, they are very strong uh, countries that support the human right in Burma. But okay. the point is ASEAN cannot deliver five points because of the division. We need international community to take some serious action, not just passing the bucket to the ASEAN and just staying all right. No, there's a serious problem here now. Okay, we are hearing the pleas from you and from Christopher, two international leaders for more assistance. Let's hope they're listening too. Thank you very much, all of you, for joining us today. Chorwin, Justin Chambers and Christopher Gunnis. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Calvin Ng, Nihad Alabadi, Fungi Nguyen and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Deepak Pushkaran. The program was edited by Ahmed Ed Fagha, Lynn Nguyen and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and we'll be back again on Wednesday.